Welcome to our third night on this prophecy of Isaiah. And just as a, a way of doing a bit of a recap, uh, it would be good just to briefly consider what we looked at in our previous classes, where we looked at chapters 49 and 50. And this is what we came up with as the breakdown. We saw the second song of the servant, along with the comfort that Yahweh gives to the servant, and we had that one verse of praise. We considered in detail Zion's reaction. They felt forgotten and forsaken, and we get that beautiful response from Yahweh as he provides them with the three reasons why he hasn't, his love will never fail, and four assurances that Zion would see her adopted children, that it would be made up of Gentile nations, and that she would be permanently overcrowded by the immortal saints in the kingdom, and that Yahweh had not divorced Zion. And we also looked at the third servant song and Yahweh's instruction to follow the servant and rely on him rather than our own strength. So for the final two nights, we're going to have a look at chapter 51 and 52 through to verse 12. And similar to what we discovered when we looked at this in chapters 49 and 50 is that we look at the chapter splits and, well, the translators put a chapter split in there, but really it's not that helpful for us in the context of how we would start to um, split up the prophecy. So I'm going to flick to another side slide just in a moment, which has a different colour scheme like we did in the first class, and we'll see how this looks if we were to break up the chapters and ignore the chapter breakdowns. But here's the view if we start with the chapter breakdowns, chapter 51 and 52, and, and the detailed breakdown within that. So we start off in chapter 51 and verse 1, where we have hearkened to Yahweh as he confirms his past faithfulness and promise of future blessing. In verses 4 to 6, hearken to Yahweh again as he promises everlasting salvation to Jew and Gentile. In verses 7 to 8, hearken to Yahweh again as he assures the people they need not fear their enemies. And then we move from the three hearkens, now we've got the three awake awakes. In verses 9 to 16, we have the first one as the captives plead with Yahweh, it's interposed like he did in the past, and we get Yahweh's response to that. And then in verses 17 to 23, the second awake awake where Yahweh speaks to Jerusalem of her calamities and promises deliverance. And then we move into the next chapter in chapter 52, verses 1 to 6, the third awake awake, where Yahweh tells the captives to get ready. It, the end of their captivity is nigh. And then in verses 7 to 10, we have this great joy and rejoicing in the promised day. And Yahweh exhorts his people to prepare for their inevitable salvation. And then when we get down to chapter uh, 52 verse 13, we start moving into the fourth servant song. So that's the view if you wanted to colour code chapter splits. So let's ignore the chapter splits and change to a different colour scheme so that we can see how we would uh, group some of these sections of the prophecy. And ultimately what we see is that it is really one flow of a prophecy. The previous two chapters we looked at are, are relevant and uh, this flows on from that, and, and it just continues like that. But if we want to group them into, I guess, separate groups, we'd say, well, there's four groups, really. 
The first group is what we show here in the green. Three times we have this prophecy where we're directed to hearken unto Yahweh in verse 1 and verse 4 and verse 7. So we group these together in green and it's the hearken to Yahweh section. Also three times we have this term awake, awake. Once it's spoken by the faithful Renman in captivity in verse 9, which we'll see Yahweh's response as he gives them these four beautiful assurances. And then Yahweh uses the same phrase in verse 17 and, and through to chapter 52 and verse 1 as he commands those that are receiving this prophecy to awake, awake. And so we can group these together in the purple section and call it the awake, awake section. And then we have the culmination of these three hearkens and these three awake, awakes in this wonderful vision of the promised day and, and an exhortation to prepare for the inevitable salvation. And this is the section we've got shown here in orange, covering from chapter 52, verse 7 through to 12. And what you'll see as we go through this is that the green section and the purple section and the orange section are really all joined together as part of this amazing prophecy. And then the final section starts in chapter 52 and verse 13. And that goes all the way through to chapter 53 and verse 12. And you'll see there's a change of focus as it commences the fourth servant's song. And in terms of what we're going to cover tonight, well, the reading probably gave it away. Tonight we're going to cover up to verse 16. And then in our next class, we're going to cover um, the next section there through to chapter 52 and verse 12. And what we'll do is we'll leave the commencement of the fourth servant song to the studies next year, God willing. And what we're going to find really is that chapter 51 through to chapter 52 in verse 12 is the most beautiful introduction to the fourth servant song. So they're not, they're not separate in that sense. They just continue to flow and, and uh, we'll see that as we go through how there's so many connections with these sections with that servant song and indeed the previous servant songs as well. And the amazing thing about this prophecy, which we've mentioned before, and we, we continue to see it time and time again, and we'll see it again in these two chapters, is that this prophecy has an application to the, those that are in captivity in the days of uh, Babylon. But even more so, it's got application to us living today as it propels our minds all the way into the future, uh, into the kingdom age. And you'll notice in verse 1 that the call to hearken is made to those who follow after righteousness and seek the Lord. And this is the first of these three calls to hearken. And really, it's, a, it's, it's clearly a follow-on from the previous chapter. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 50, he's instructed the people to, uh, those who are walking in darkness, to uh, trust in Yahweh and... Now we have this group of people that are following in righteousness and seeking Yahweh. So really it's now uh, these people that are specifically mentioned in the previous chapter. And it's worth taking a note next to verse 1 to Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, because Zephaniah said something very similar to the people before they went into captivity. He told them to seek Yahweh. He told them to seek righteousness. 
He told them to seek meekness. And here now we are in Isaiah, and Yahweh is calling on those people that had heeded the word of Zephaniah. They're now in captivity, and and they're continuing to seek righteousness and to seek Yahweh, heeding those words of Zephaniah. And for those that are following righteousness and seeking Yahweh, they're told in Isaiah 51 and verse 1, to look unto the rock from whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. We'll shift off of this slide, but we will keep coming back to it. So if anyone is trying to madly scribble it down, there'll be plenty of opportunity over the next two studies to come back to this. But the statement that we just had there, look unto the rock whence ye are hewn and into the hole of the pit whence ye are digged, is connected to the next statements that are in verse 2. They go together like we're showing here on the slide. So the phrase in verse 1, look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, is linked to the phrase in verse 2, look unto Abraham your father. Look to the founder of the nation. And the figure relates to the act of quarrying stone for the purpose of building. And that's exactly what Yahweh did. He started with one man, Abraham, and from him he built a nation. He was called alone and blessed and he increased. And the phrase in verse 1, look unto the hole of the pit whence ye are digged, is linked to the phrase in verse 2, look unto Sarah that bear you. You know, Sarah was barren for a long time until Yahweh opened her womb and, and outflowed the Jewish nation. And as we can see, there's a wonderful connection with Christ in both of these statements. The Lord Jesus Christ was the chief cornerstone. Jews might have had Abraham as the rock from whence they were hewn, but we have been adopted into this family by our Lord Jesus Christ. In an amazing connection with these verses, in Isaiah, the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 3 and verse 9, God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And that's exactly what Yahweh did, and it's what he continues to do today. The process commenced with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it continued through his perfect life of obedience. And we've got another connection with this idea in Matthew 27 and verse 30, which records, and laid him in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. So you can see the connection there with verse 1. And this process was cemented in all eternity when the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He came forth from the horrible pit. The angel said to Mary, he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. The grave could not hold him, and he rose from the death. And it was the birth of the spiritual nation of Israel and for those that are in Christ, Galatians 3 verse 29 says, And if ye be Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And from both Abraham and Christ, we're told in Isaiah 51 and verse 2 that Yahweh called him alone and he blessed him and he increased him from one old man and from one old woman came a nation. You know, the Apostle Paul picks these exact thoughts up in Hebrews chapter 11. And you can see he talks of both Abraham and Sarah. 
By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. And then we have Sarah. Through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child. And then we have those words, Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky multitude, and of the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. So what is the point that Yahweh is making to the righteous in captivity? Why direct their attention to Abraham and Sarah and and point out that the whole nation is hewed from a rock and and they flowed out of Sarah? Why does he do that? Well, I think it's, it's probably reasonable to assume that there's only a small number of righteous in captivity. Maybe the numbers started off higher, but as the 70 years progressed, it's possible that the numbers dwindled through death, through years of people drifting away and losing faith, perhaps being distracted by the things in Babylon. Those who remained faithful, perhaps they started to wonder, well, how is their captivity going to end and Jerusalem be rebuilt when there's so few of us left? And so Yahweh is telling this small group of righteous people these three things. He says, Abraham and Sarah were old and stricken in years, yet they bore a son. So you think that you're broken and Jerusalem is desolate and waste? Well, you could describe Abraham and Sarah just like that before they had Isaac. Abraham and Sarah are an example of faith. Romans 4, verses 19 to 20. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. So they were old, but they had faith. And if Yahweh can build a whole nation from one old man and one old woman, then he can deliver you. All you need to do is take the example of faith from Abraham and hold fast to the promise of your salvation and you surely will be delivered from captivity. And there's a really interesting contrast to what we're seeing here and to Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 24. Here we've got the righteous in captivity. They're obviously worried about their small numbers and their ability to rebuild Jerusalem. And then over in Ezekiel chapter 33, we've got this large group of people. They're walking in unrighteousness in Jerusalem. We're told they inhabit the waste places of Israel. They're idolaters. They're murderers. They work abomination. And here they are, they're they're boasting and they're saying, well, Abraham was one and he inherited the land, but we are many. The land is given to us. And they're boasting about their large numbers. And you can't miss the contrast of this group here with the attitude of that small group of faithful in exile who are worried about their small number. And so here you've got the unrighteous saying Abraham was just one man and And we're many, so we'll inherit the land. And Yahweh says, no chance. You're going to fall by the sword. So here in Isaiah chapter 51, 
Yahweh is using this example of Abraham to show what, they, that what he can do with just one. And it's the few that are going to inherit the land. And you can see how this applies to us today. We're all part of a tiny group of people trying to walk in righteousness compared to the billions of people walking in unrighteousness. Yahweh doesn't need many people to do a great work. He can bless and increase just one person alone. So our faithful work, no matter how small, we can see that Yahweh can bless it. And so we have this encouragement from Yahweh here that from just a small group walking in righteousness, the group that is focused on, that they will inherit a rejuvenated earth, which is really emphasised in the vision of Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 3. Yahweh will comfort Zion, just like he comforted Sarah and gave her the child of promise. Yahweh will comfort all of her waste places by rebuilding them and returning them to their former luster and glory. Yahweh will make her wilderness like Eden, cultivated and fertile, beautiful and ordered, just like Eden was prior to the fall of mankind. Yahweh will transform her desert into a garden of Yahweh, the garden he planted in Eden, as recorded in Genesis 2 and verse 8. The Septuagint renders it as the paradise of Yahweh, safe and secure. Yahweh will fill it with the sound of rejoicing and praise by enlarging her natural and her spiritual family like we saw in our previous study. We saw how there's rejoicing in Zion because she's honoured by her family of adopted sons and children and adorns them like a beautiful um, ornament. Yahweh will fill it with the voice of melody. The Hebrew is a psalm. The praises of God will again be celebrated. The singing of praises for Yahweh for the salvation of the saints coming forth as the voice of many waters. The multitude singing a new song before the throne. Jeremiah describes it like this in chapter 33 and verse 11. The voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voice of them that shall say, praise Yahweh of armies, for Yahweh is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And of them that shall bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of Yahweh, for I will cause to return the captivity of the land as at the first, saith Yahweh. And in part, we can see that these things were fulfilled when the nation returned to the land and rebuilt the city. However, this is really talking about the final comfort, the final renewal of Zion when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And the revised version uses the term hath comforted and hath made because they're an absolute certainty. For Yahweh, they're as good as done. And so, brethren and sisters, as we consider the first of the three hearkens in chapter 51, we see it gives consolation and assurance to those who follow after righteousness that he will restore again Zion to her former beauty. The paradise on earth will return like it was in Eden. And all this is wrapped up in the assurance that he can fulfill it through just one man. 
the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom came forth the spiritual nation of Israel. The second hearken takes us to the next section in chapter 51, verses 4 to 6. Hearken to Yahweh as he promises everlasting salvation to Jew and Gentile. You know, Yahweh calls upon his people and his nation to hearken unto him. They're his special people. Whether they're Jew or Gentile, chosen by him, taken into covenant with him, given to Christ, redeemed by him as their peculiar people and called by his grace. And the use of the term nation in verse 4 is yet another reminder that Yahweh has not cast off his nation, not even though they felt forgotten and forsaken in chapter 49. There's always opportunity for the nation to return to Yahweh and, and to listen to him. Well, the fact that he says, listen to me three times in this chapter would suggest that they're not listening very well, but it doesn't stop Yahweh from calling to them. Yahweh has not cast off his people. They just need to hearken unto him, just like us. Yahweh will never cast us off, and all we need to do is hearken unto him and be ready to listen to his word. And so what are the things in this section that the people are told to hearken unto? Well, I think in verses 4 to 6, there's five things that Yahweh asks the Jew and Gentile to hearken unto and hear. The first thing that Yahweh says to the people and nation that they should hearken unto and hear is that the gospel of Christ will be preached and published to the world. His words here in Isaiah chapter 51 say, A law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. We'll come back to this slide in a moment, I promise you, but I just want to move off this one slide for one moment because we've got a really clear connection with these words and the words in Isaiah chapter 2. Here we've got law and we've got judgment. The law proceeding from Yahweh here in chapter 51 and verse 4 is the word Torah, and it means a precept or a statute. We've got the words in Isaiah 2 and verse 3. It's right there. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. It's not the Mosaic law, but it's the law proceeding from the Messiah, the established king of Zion. It's his laws and his statutes, his ways and his paths. They're taught for all mankind, Jew and Gentile. Likewise, in chapter 51 and verse 4, it says, Yahweh will make his judgment to rest for a light of the people. The word judgment is mispat, and it's equivalent to a law or a statute or the institution of a true religion. It's called judgment because it comes from the God of judgment, flowing from his wisdom and counsel. It's a declaration of his will. Yahweh will set for firmly so that it's established and unmovable. And we've got these words in Isaiah 2 and verse 4. He shall judge among the nations. And the law and the judgment will be a light of the people, it says in Isaiah 51. It's going to continue to rest. It's going to take a firm footing and a deep root in the world. It's a firm standing place. 
from which the light to lighten the nations will stream out in all directions. And look at it, it's right there in Isaiah 2 and verse 5. O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. You know, the light was also mentioned in our considerations in Isaiah 49 and verse 6. Yahweh proclaimed that he would give his servant as a light to the Gentiles. The light was also mentioned in our considerations in chapter 50 and verse 10. Yahweh proclaimed the light to lighten our dark path is to trust in the name of Yahweh and stay upon his God. So Yahweh is referring to the time when the Lord Jesus Christ will be king over the whole earth and he'll spread his gospel and his messianic laws throughout all the earth. So back to this slide. The second thing Yahweh tells his people and nation to hearken unto and hear is that this law and judgment, the gospel of Christ, will bring with them righteousness and salvation. In verse 5, he says, My righteousness is near, my salvation is gone forth. They're God's righteousness. They're God's salvation because that's been his plan and purpose from the beginning. They'll open up a way for mankind to be justified and saved. It's interesting to note that the Vulgate Latin translates my righteousness as my righteous one and my salvation as my saviour, which incorporates into this verse the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who perfectly reflected Yahweh's righteousness. And it's through the Lord Jesus Christ that salvation is obtained. And in Matthew 1 and verse 21, the angel said to Mary that Jesus would save his people from their sins. And both righteousness and salvation are captured together in Romans 1 and verse 16 to 17, where it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, that they shall live by faith. Romans 1 verses 16 to 17. And you know, there's a lesson that we can't miss here when we read about righteousness and salvation. It's that there's no salvation without righteousness. And wherever the righteousness of Yahweh is, there his salvation is as well. And those who are justified and sanctified will be glorified. It's another reason for us to be amongst those in verse 1 who are seeking after righteousness. The third thing that Yahweh tells the people and nation to hearken unto and hear is that this righteousness and salvation will shortly appear. It's in the words near in relation to righteousness and in the word, gone forth in relation to salvation. You know, to the Jews in exile, Yahweh is telling them that his righteousness is near. It's near in time because they don't have long to wait. It's near in place because he isn't far away to seek. Likewise, his salvation has gone forth. The execution of that purpose has already commenced. He would soon deliver his people It's as good as done, and the time is at hand. And you know, for us today, Yahweh's righteousness and his salvation are near and gone forth. 
because the righteous one is soon going to appear to establish God's kingdom. He's already made the path of salvation accessible. And the Bible concludes in Revelation 22 with Christ declaring three times that he's coming quickly. Behold, I come quickly. Behold, I come quickly. Surely I come quickly. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ said that over 2,000, nearly 2,000 years ago. So what does that mean? Well, it means we're 2,000 years closer to it becoming a reality. And the signs tell us that it surely must be the case, that Yahweh's righteousness and his salvation will shortly appear. The fourth thing that Yahweh tells his people and his nation to hearken unto and hear is that the righteousness and the salvation will be extended to Jew and Gentile alike. He says, mine arm is an instrument used to execute. Mine arm shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me and on mine arm shall they trust. You know, the arm is an instrument used to execute judgment or our purpose. It can be used to destroy or defend, to comfort or to crush, to eliminate or embrace. And when a parent smacks a child, it's the arm doing the work of judgment. When a parent hugs the child, it's the arms doing the comforting. So when Yahweh says that his arm will judge and on his arms they will trust. He's saying, I, Yahweh, will judge and they will trust on me. And notice the order of the words that are here. First, his arms will judge the people. Second, the isles wait upon him. And thirdly, on his arm, they will trust. So it's in this order. And that's exactly what the scriptures teaches us. Firstly, Yahweh will stretch out his arms upon the earth and judge the people. He did it against the nation when they went into captivity. He did it against the captors when he saved the nation out of captivity. That same arm is going to judge the people, both Jew and Gentile, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And you know, many people and nations will be destroyed, crushed, eliminated, removed from the earth because there was never any hope for them. They're the ones who trust in their own light and they never yield to the kingship of Yahweh and they never desire to walk in his light. So that's the first thing he does with his arm. The second is that the isles will wait upon Yahweh. And we discussed the isles in our first night. The pagan lands, the distant lands, the Gentile nations, they're all going to wait on Yahweh. It's those that are left in the earth who have witnessed the destruction and the crushing and the elimination across the globe and they become interested in that true religion and they acknowledge and worship the true God and they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ as king. And they're going to discover in Christ his righteousness and salvation. And they're going to discover the most wonderful gospel and the blessings that come from it. All the things that we read in Psalm chapter 72 will be witnessed as he judges the poor with righteousness in Psalm 72, verse 2, and brings salvation to the children of the needy in Psalm 72, verse 4, and breaks into pieces the oppressor in Psalm 72, verse 4, and all nations will serve him, as it says in Psalm 72, and verse 11. And when they witness all this, 
Then thirdly, they'll trust in the arm. His arms are going to defend and comfort and embrace. And the nations are going to have total trust on the power of Christ to give them protection and preservation and deliver on all the things that are promised in Psalm chapter 72. So you can understand why there's going to be no more weeping or crying or pain or sorrow when the nations have total trust and confidence in the kingship of Christ and the faith and the fear in the Father and the heavens above. And so what a beautiful image we have just in these few words as Yahweh stretches out his arm to judge the nations and those that are left turn to Yahweh and trust in his mighty arm of righteousness and salvation. And the fifth thing that Yahweh tells the people to hearken unto and to hear is that this promised righteousness and salvation will be forever. And we've got this call in verse 6 to look up and to observe the heavens. Look around and observe the earth. The heavens are going to vanish away like smoke and wax old like a garment. And everyone, everyone who is tied to these temporary things will be gone, but Yahweh's salvation will be forever and his righteousness will never be abolished. You know, there's a couple connections with verse 6. The first one we looked at in our last class in Isaiah 50 in verse, six, uh, verse 9, when the servant talks about the help from Yahweh and he was confident that his enemies would wax old as a garment. Well, now it's been extended. It's not just the enemy that will wax old like a garment, but that whole world that they've created is going to do likewise. And there's also another connection in 2 of Peter 3. Uh, you know, surely the apostle Peter must have had Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 6 in mind when he wrote 2 of Peter chapter 3. Just look at the connections as it talks about the day of the Lord. We've got the heavens passing away with a great noise, the elements melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And when the new heavens and the new earth are established and the messianic law proceeds from Zion, well, Isaiah 51 and verse 6 says that's going to bring everlasting salvation and an everlasting righteousness. He says salvation shall be forever. Christ is going to be the author. And the Apostle Paul says in Hebrews 5 verses 7 to 10, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And righteousness shall not be abolished. It's an everlasting righteousness that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to bring and when the angel answers Daniel's prayers in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 24, and he talks about that time, he says that it will bring an everlasting righteousness. It's a day that we long to see and a day that is shortly going to come to pass. Actually, we skipped over the question that Peter poses right in the middle of 
2nd of Peter chapter 3, and that's something we should consider. He says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? So if the old heavens and the old earth are going to vanish and be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth, and there's going to be this everlasting salvation and righteousness, what manner of persons ought we to be? Well, you know, he gives the answer in 2 Peter 3 and verse 18. It's linked to our theme. He says, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And this type of person that we're talking about right now, this type of person is the subject of the third hearken request from Yahweh. Those who know righteousness and people who's, in whose heart is the law. They follow after the righteous one. They seek to grow up and be like Christ. They grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and his law. And it's not just in their head, it's in their hearts. It's those that are spoken of in Jeremiah 31 and verse 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. You know, this applies to us just as much as it does to the house of Israel. And what's the message from Yahweh to the group that he is calling to to hearken? Well, the message in this hearken is to fear not the reproach of men, neither be afraid of their revilings. And you don't need to look very far to find this constant stream of reproach and revilings all through the ages. For those returning from captivity, well, they had opposition from the surrounding nations and enemies. We've got recorded in Nehemiah 4 and verse 1, but it came to pass that when Sambalat heard that we built the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. There's reproach and revilings. The Lord Jesus Christ was under constant pressure from the Jewish leaders and we enter into his mind there in Psalm 116 when he says, all men are liars. He suffered reproach and revilings. The early Christians had to deal with the Judaizers. Here's just one example in Acts 14 and verse 19 where they took Paul and they stoned him and they took him out of the city and supposed that he was dead. And the saints have had to endure persecution through the ages. And today our brethren and sisters in some countries are, are still dealing with and facing persecution. And we've got those words in Acts 14 verse 22, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And all these different scenarios, these people have had to deal with the reproach and the revilings. But Yahweh says to them, hearken unto me, fear not these things. So the question is, why shouldn't we fear? Because Yahweh says in Isaiah 51 and verse 8 that one day they're all going to disappear. And here's that figure again of the moth eating a garment. These things will be eaten up like a moth eats a garment, eaten up like a worm eats the wool. 
to be replaced by Yahweh's everlasting righteousness and salvation, as he says in verse 6. And so we've seen then the three hearkens to Yahweh that he proclaims in verses 1 to 8. And what a wonderful message this is to the captives given in those days and to us today. Hearken to Yahweh, since Yahweh can build a nation from one old man and one old woman, he can certainly deliver you from the captivity. Hearken unto Yahweh. How can he do this? Well, the gospel of Christ will be preached and published to the world, and, and very soon it's going to herald in in a time of eternal righteousness and salvation to both Jew and Gentile. Hearken to Yahweh. Given that this time is near, we don't need to worry about the reproach and the revilings of our enemies. They're going to be gone forever. And so that's the three hearkens. And we're now going to turn our attention to the awake-awake section. The first awake-awake is spoken by the captives in verses 9 to 10. And we've got Yahweh's responses in verses 11 to 16. So even though this awake-awake is initiated by the captives, it ends up being a message of hope from Yahweh to the captives. It's almost like Yahweh is using their voice to give them further assurances of his love and his care for them. And those in exile, they're pleading to Yahweh to interpose on their behalf. You know, from their skewed perspective, they thought God was inactive. He wasn't doing anything. And they're saying they want him to exert his power on their behalf. And actually, the use of the word arm is the first reference that gives us the clue that this is talking about the victory against Egypt. And you might want to put a reference next to the word arm. You might want to put a reference which is Exodus 6 and verse 6. Because in Exodus 6 and verse 6, Yahweh says to the nation... I will bring you out from under the burden of Egypt. I will redeem you with a stretched out arm. The nation is reminding Yahweh of his victory against Egypt. And the references continue. The use of the word Rahab. It's the word strength. And it's the same word that's used in Isaiah 30 and verse 7 in relation to the Egyptians. The word dragon could also be rendered crocodile, no doubt talking about that crocodile of the great Nile. And in Ezekiel 29 and verse 3, links it to the, the, the Pharaoh king of Egypt. Not only did Yahweh wound and cut Egypt's strength, in Isaiah 51 and verse 10, he delivered his people through the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea as the ransomed passed over. So, you know, to paraphrase those that are in captivity, they're saying, awake, awake, Yahweh. You saved us from the captivity in Egypt with your strong arm in the most awesome and miraculous way. Wake, awake and save us from captivity once again. Is this what we ask for today? In our time of captivity, are we pleading with Yahweh to bring about our redemption? And Yahweh responds to the captives 
and he gives them four assurances. And these four assurances are of their immediate return of captivity from Babylon, but really they point forward to the final and the eternal redemption when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth, which means that these words that we're about to look at apply just as much to us as they do to the captives. The first assurance is in verse 11. Yahweh assures that the redeemed will return. It's a scene of joy as they come singing unto Zion. Everlasting joy will crown their heads, or as it could be rendered, their great head in reference to Christ. And you'll find that this verse is almost identical to Isaiah 35 and verse 10. It's an assurance that the Lord Jesus Christ will return and that everlasting joy will become a reality with the joy and the gladness and, and there's no more sorrow and there's no more mourning. The second assurance is in verses 12 to 13. Yahweh is their comforter and they need not fear. And when you have a look at these verses, you find there's really three points that come out regarding those fears. The first one is they don't need to fear mortal man because he dies like the grass. Yahweh is eternal. The second point is that they don't need to fear constantly. They don't need to spend their day worrying about the oppressor. Yahweh is the almighty creator of heaven and earth and mankind. Don't fret away your days in fear of the oppressors. The third thing that Yahweh says is you don't need to fear beyond what is rational. Yes, there's an oppressor. Yes, he's furious. Yes, he might do some mischief. Yes, it's wise to be on your guard. But it's irrational to be afraid that he's suddenly going to destroy you without any way of escape. Because Yahweh is always in control and he'll always be a comfort and take away that irrational fear. And we can take comfort from Yahweh with these same three points regarding our fears. Fear not those that can destroy the body. Yahweh is going to save us in one way or the other, whether it's in this life or the next, when his son returns. Don't spend our days living in fear. Yahweh is our maker and is watching over us. And don't let ourselves give way to irrational fear. Yahweh is our comforter and he's always in control. So in Yahweh's assurance to the captives, he reminds them not to forget our maker. Have him in constant remembrance and he'll give us comfort as he chases away our fears. The third assurance is in verse 14 that the captives would soon be released. They won't die in the pit. And in the meantime, Yahweh's going to ensure that they continue to have their needs met until they're released. And here in verse 14, captivity is described like a pit or grave. That's what the world is like without the Lord Jesus Christ. The assurance here is looking beyond just our mortal life. Yes, there's many that have died while in captivity. Many have died awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the faithful have their names written in the book of life. Yahweh's not going to let us die and leave us in the pit. We've got the hope of the resurrection. And this assurance is to us as well. We saw earlier that the Bible proclaims, Behold, I come quickly. And there's not much time left while we await 
his restoration. And in the meantime, we can be assured that Yahweh will continue to provide for our needs. The fourth assurance that Yahweh gives is in verses 15 to 16. He circles back to the cry of the captives who mention their history when Yahweh divided the seas and he proclaims, Yes, I, Yahweh, who divided the sea, Yahweh of armies is his name. And in verse 16, Yahweh comforts all his people who depend on what the prophet said to them in the name of Yahweh. All the people who place their hope upon those words. Through the prophets, they had the promise of redemption. They're not just the words of the prophet. They're the words of Yahweh. And there is solemn promise of redemption. Yahweh comforts all his people by saying that they're safe. He's covered them in the shadow of his hand. Just like Yahweh protected the Messiah in his shadow, as we saw in the first night in Isaiah 49 and verse 2, he also protects his people in the shadow of his hand. And Yahweh concludes this fourth assurance by saying that the solemn promise through his word and the protection of his hand are given so that we might plant, that he might plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say to Zion, thou art my people. You know, this can only be fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth. The former heavens and the former earth will be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth under the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ, the greater than Moses, the one who will bring eternal redemption to those who put their faith in the name of Yahweh, those who have his words in their mouth, those who are hidden in the shadow of his hand, those who have the quality of the servant of Yahweh. And may it be, brethren and sisters, that the Lord Jesus Christ might soon return and complete the promises of Yahweh that he has given in these four assurances to those who are in captivity. In the meantime, let us hearken unto Yahweh and follow after righteousness as we seek Yahweh. Hearken unto Yahweh, the time of the Lord's return is near. Hearken unto Yahweh and fear not the reproach and the revilings of our enemies. Awake, awake! The redeemed will go to Zion in joy. We'll have nothing to fear because Yahweh is in control. He's not going to leave us to die in captivity. And he's given us his solemn promise to protect us and to deliver us in that great day. So in the days ahead, as we await this promised time, let us put the words of God in our mouth and hide ourselves in the the shadow of his hand, because one day we're going to hear those words of Yahweh, Thou art my people.